Welcome to the Mapped Out Money Podcast, where we help you understand finance and manage your money so you can get on with living your adventure. You're listening to episode number 56. And today's episode is brought to you by the Mapped Out Money resources page. So uh, this is a a list of resources of mine and Hannah's favorite books, podcasts, uh, YouTube channels to follow, all related to money and uh, some also general self-improvement, productivity type stuff. If that at all sounds interesting to you, we'd love for you to go check it out. Also, all the books on that page are affiliate links. So if you click through those links and purchase something, uh, we will get a small kickback as well. So it's a great way to support the show if that's something you'd like to do. To check all that out, go to mappedoutmoney.com forward slash resources. So today we are going to talk about, I guess, our biggest takeaways from the book, The Psychology of Money from Morgan Housel. This is a book that we did for our very first uh, book club meeting a couple of months ago. And I say this really not lightly. This is probably uh, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, finance money book that I've ever read. I think he just does a phenomenal job. He tells, he basically sets up every chapter with sort of a point and then just proceeds to tell stories, which make everything, I think, so much more memorable and like easy to relate to. Well, and as somebody who like doesn't particularly love to read personal finance books, <laughs> uh, I I enjoyed this book. It was an entertaining read. Yeah, it's not like a textbook that just gives Mm -hmm. you like investment percentages or something. Yeah, and it definitely, we've talked about Betty Reads before, but if you're married and um, you're looking for ways to like talk more with your spouse and stuff, I think reading the same book is such a good way to do that because a couple of days we just sat in our den and we're sitting beside each other reading, you know, at different points in the book. But we'd be like, oh my gosh, have you gotten to this part yet? And then we'd kind of have a conversation around whatever point that was. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's kind of a fun, fun way to spend time together. Totally. It's a fun way to create conversation and It's kind of like, you know, binge watching a Netflix show together, but a book. So I don't think we're going to try to tackle every point in this book. This episode would be incredibly long if we did that because he he does so many good things. But Well, and also if you want everything out of the book, just read the book. Just read the book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I do hope that if you've thought about reading this book, um, that this will be an episode to sort of let you know our biggest takeaways, what we got out of it, and maybe inspire you to read it. And if you have read it, maybe we'll bring up some points that will let you think about something in a different way. Before we dive into the meat of the book, I'm going to read this quote that he has at, at the very beginning. And it's a quote from Napoleon that says, a genius is the man who can do the average thing when everyone else around him is losing his mind. And that really kind of sets the stage for everything else that we'll we'll talk about in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole, the book is called The Psychology of Money for a reason. This is not a, uh, a book about how to analyze spreadsheets or pick stocks. It is about the mindset and emotional side of money. So with that being said, I think it makes sense to start at, at chapter one, which is also potentially my favorite point of the whole book. So the title of this chapter is called No One's Crazy. And he kind of opens it up talking about how your personal experiences with money make up point zero 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 zeros like what nine nine There's or ten zeros, zeros in here one percent of what has happened in the world and yet it makes up something like 80 percent of how you think the world works right so you know very little from personal experience and yet that's your viewpoint so that's how you think the world works and he, he gives so many examples over and over again about how we are a product of the time and place that we were born And it was really cool thinking about even like how our parents think differently about money than we do. Uh, And our grandparents think differently about money than than our parents. And a lot of it has to do with like, were you coming of age during a time of really high inflation? If so, that's going to cause you to think about saving one way that it wouldn't for me. And I think eventually, like, we might even just do an episode just on this totally. point. Because he goes in. It's so deep. Uh, what's that in part of the book? What is he called? Uh, the postscript. Yeah, yeah. the postscript. Uh, where he, like, really dives into that part in detail. So yeah. I think we might cover that later on. But uh, why don't you read the lottery story? Because I think that, like. Kind of proves the point. Yeah, it drives it home pretty quickly. Yeah. So here's, here's what he says. He kind of sets this up about, you know, folks who buy lottery tickets. So he says. 
every financial decision a person makes makes sense to them in the moment and checks the boxes they need to check. They tell themselves a story about what they're doing and why they're doing it, and that story has been shaped by their own unique experiences. Take a simple example of lottery tickets. Americans spend more on them than movies, video games, music, sporting events, and books combined. And who buys them? Mostly poor people. The lowest income households in the U.S. on average spend $412 a year on lottery tickets, four times the amount of those in the highest income groups. 40% of Americans cannot come up with $400 in an emergency, which is to say those buying $400 in lottery tickets are, by and large, the same people who say they couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency. They're blowing up their safety nets on something with a one in millions chance of hitting it big. It seems crazy to me, and it probably seems crazy to you, but I'm not in the lowest income group, and you are likely not either. So it's hard for many of us to intuitively grasp the subconscious reasoning of low-income lottery ticket buyers. But if you strain a little bit, you can imagine it going something like this. We live paycheck to paycheck, and saving seems so out of reach. Our prospects for much higher wages seems out of reach. We can't afford nice vacations, new cars, health insurance, or homes in safe neighborhoods. We can't put our kids through college without crippling debt. Much of the stuff that you people who read finance books either have now or have a good chance of getting, we don't. Buying a lottery ticket is the only time in our lives we can hold a tangible dream of getting the good stuff that you already have and take for granted. We are paying for a dream, and you may not understand that because you are already living a dream. That's why we buy more tickets than you do. He then goes on to say, you don't have to agree with this reasoning. Buying lottery tickets when you're broke is still a bad idea, but you can kind of understand why the lottery ticket sales persist. He gives a ton of examples like that that just further prove the point that like no one is crazy. You are shaped by your own reality and that impacts the financial decisions you make. Yeah, I really liked how he talked about that. And I think the awareness of that is really important. So both when we find ourselves judging somebody for the choices that they're making and also like when we find ourselves being judged for the choices that we're making. Totally. And what you just said, right, it's, sort of the self-awareness piece, which is a big theme that we talk about on the show all the time and a big theme of this book because this is important in both of the scenarios you described. And it's also important to recognize when maybe actually we are being shaped by our environment, but in a way that we don't want to be. And so how can we try to consciously recognize the decisions we're making, how that are how those might be shaped in a negative way from our environment that we were born into, and then, you know, try to correct that as best we can going forward. All right. The second point that he touches on is luck and risk. Again, this is one where we're gonna talk more about this when we do our episode talking about Naval is it Ravikant? Is yeah, Ravikant. Yeah. Uh, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. That was another uh, book that we did for book club. So we're going to have an episode on that. And we really like how he covers the whole luck topic. So we're kind of going to save that discussion yeah. for a future episode. Yeah. To tease it, the big thing that uh, Morgan Household talks about with it is that it exists. Most of the time, people tend to put either no emphasis on luck or too much emphasis on luck. And he has a really good job of talking about that. I think Naval breaking it down into four different types of luck that we'll do in the future is really, really solid. The takeaway as far as psychology of money for me was that luck exists. You need to recognize it and then just focus on what you can control, which we're going to get to in a few more chapters. Okay, the next section we're going to talk about is called Never Enough. And I'm just going to read the first story that he opens up with here. He says, John Bogle, the Vanguard founder who passed away in 2019, once told a story about money that highlights something we don't think about enough. At a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island, Kurt Vonnegut informs his pal, Joseph Heller, that their host, a hedge fund manager, made more money in a single day than Heller had earned from his wildly popular novel, Catch-22, over its whole history. Heller responds, yes, but I have something he'll never have. Enough. Enough. I was stunned by the simple eloquence of that word. Stunned for two reasons. First, because I have been given so much in my own life. And second, because Joseph Heller couldn't have been more accurate. 
For a critical element of our society, including many of the wealthiest and most powerful among us, there seems to be no limit today on what enough entails. I I think that story is so incredible, and it is amazing how much I can even feel that in our own life. We've talked about how, like, in our first year of marriage, if you would have told us and we don't even make like crazy money, but just compared to what we did, right? If you told if you told us in our first year of marriage, this is how much money you'll spend eating out in 2021, I would go like per month, I would go, wow, I can't, I don't even, I don't even, how would I ever do that? I don't, that doesn't, that's so much more than I can ever need. And then now like I've become accustomed to it and it's like, well, I could go out a little more. Like, it's so easy to just keep ratcheting that up and up and up and up. Yeah, I think he does a good job summing this up. So um, he says, the hardest financial skill is getting the goalposts to stop moving, but it's one of the most important. If expectations rise with results, there is no logic in striving for more because you'll feel the same after putting in extra effort. It gets dangerous when the taste of having more, more money, more power, more prestige increases ambition faster than satisfaction. It's also interesting because he uh, he gives a number of examples of Ponzi schemes with Bernie Madoff and a few others that like one of the ways they end up eventually getting caught is they just they can't get enough. Bernie Madoff it had something like seven hundred million dollars, you know, and it's like. You don't think that after the first few million, he would have been like, oh, man, take my ball and go home. Like, I haven't gotten caught. I made a few million. That's pretty good. And it's like he just couldn't stop. And so he just kept going and going and going. Eventually, you know, you get caught and you get thrown out. Like, it's so funny that that's the thing that gets them. Yeah. I want to read one more little thing right here and then we can move on. He says, modern capitalism is a pro at two things, generating wealth and generating envy. Perhaps they go hand in hand. Wanting to surpass your peers can be the fuel of hard work, but life isn't any fun without a sense of enough. Happiness, as it said, is just results minus expectations. I like that little equation like that he gives at the end of that, that happiness is results minus expectations. Like I totally. think that's just good to, to remember. And um, the other thing that he talks about right here is how if you get to the point where your ambition is increasing faster than your satisfaction, then every step forward that you make is going to push your goalpost two steps ahead. Yeah. So even though you're making progress and you're moving towards the things that you say you want, you want, you're like falling behind. Yep. So it's just so easy to fall into that it's as so a human. human. It's so yeah. human. And the first step is recognizing it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the Bernie Madoff stories and, and some of the other Ponzi scheme stuff, uh, he shares this Warren Buffett quote about how they threw it all away. They had everything, but they threw it all away for stuff they didn't even need. And he says, um, to make money they didn't have and didn't need, they risked what they did have and did need. And that's foolish. It's just plain foolish if you risk something that is important to you for something that is unimportant to you. It does not make any sense. There's no reason to risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. Which, again, just proves how emotional it's money is. It's all emotional. It's yeah. all emotional. Okay, next we have confounding compounding. And I'll talk about the Warren Buffett quote, and then I want you to help encourage Everybody. Yeah. Uh, so the stat or not stat, the quote that he gives in the book is that 81 and a half billion of Warren Buffett's 84 and a half billion net worth came after his 65th birthday. And um, Housel says our minds are not built to handle such absurdities. And that is crazy to it's think about. So crazy. Compounding or exponential growth is something that happens in a ton of different areas in life, not just with money, but to Housel's point, our our little bitty human brains struggle to really grasp the magnitude of this and make any sort of sense of it in our day-to-day life. Like, you'll know, oh, yeah, I should compound interest. That's like a thing that matters. But when you get hit up the side with that kind of stat, like, whoa, 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 he is worth $84.5 billion, and 81 of that came after 65? It's like... How? How does that even work? Yeah. It's it's pretty mind blowing. Um, and I think we've all seen those, you know, 
compound interest charts and like we yes. all know how that works hypothetically. And I think the key points that we kind of wanted to bring out are this applies in lots of different areas of life. So I think you see this like with health. If you make some good decisions early on, those can really compound for you in the future. Yep. And the other thing that I want you to talk about is not letting this discourage you if you feel like you've missed out on past compounding. So the purpose of this chapter, right, is to really inspire you to recognize how important time is in the factor. And if you, for the few math people out there that are listening, right, the equation to building wealth is something like how much you're saving multiplied by your interest rate and then to the exponential of time, the years that you have that you're saving this money. And that exponential does crazy things the bigger and bigger your time gets. So, of course, the earlier you start, the more time you give your money to grow, the more wild things get. If you're young, this should be really inspiring to you. If you are older, this can actually be somewhat discouraging because you feel like, oh, my gosh, I've wasted all these years and all this time that I could have been compounding. And I just wanted to take a moment here to sort of pause and say that if you are if you're listening and that's you to recognize a couple of things one compounding still works and still can work for you with the time that you have going forward you can absolutely use those years to compound and do some really great things but maybe even more importantly and this kind of goes back to the never enough thing that we just talked about and then also a few other things he talks about in this book is recognizing that to really do the things that are the most important to you in life, oftentimes you don't need as much money as you maybe think. So we just wanted to encourage you that if you're feeling like it's too late, know that, yeah, you know what? It might be too late to make a kajillion dollars, right? Warren Buffett started when he was very, very, very young. The good news is you don't need that much. <laughs> and the uh, the amount of money you need to actually get the most out of life uh, is oftentimes, like I said, not nearly as much as you think. Which I think leads perfectly into the next section that we want to talk about, which is freedom. And he opens this section up with saying, controlling your time is the highest dividend money pays. Yeah, this is um, somewhat related also to, uh, I think it's Daniel Pink. There, There's a, a book I read some years ago that basically talks about the four things that um, employees, it's sort of written to business leaders, but it's the four things that employees need to feel to feel good and feel validated and, and really prosper in their roles. And a lot of them are centered around control and autonomy. And this kind of comes into play here with this freedom. When you feel restricted and when you feel that your money is keeping you from having control over your time and control over the decisions that you want to make in your life, that is when things are miserable. But if you can find yourself in a place where you're not loaded, right? You're not, you know, just bursting to the seams with all this amazing money you have, but you have enough that you have some control over your time, you have some direction over what's going on, that oftentimes is enough. So like... For me, when I left my engineering job, we took a pay cut, right? We made less money. But for me, that particular job and that particular role required so much travel at the last minute that it I almost couldn't even plan my life. I, I had a hard time planning vacations. I had a hard time planning time off to hang out with people. I had a hard time planning certain things because I it was expected that I would be available at the drop of a hat. And I knew that no matter how much money I made, if that was the expectation and that was the career path, I would never be satisfied and I would always feel uh, restrained and unhappy in that situation. Um, And so that was a big reason that I left and wanted to to try to find a, a way to do something different. The takeaway for me here is that when you think on the surface of I want to I want to be rich. I want to have money. Like if someone says that or if you think that to yourself, you don't actually necessarily want a large amount of money in the bank account. I mean, sure, that's part of it, but what you actually want is what that buys you, which I is think, oftentimes freedom. And I think the perfect uh illustration of this from our own life was just the other day we, I mean, it was just like a random Tuesday and we sat down to do our normal work and we were both just like feeling off. Yep. You know, 
and we were having a hard time focusing and, you know, whatever. And we ended up deciding to go out for a walk and we have a coffee shop close by. So we just like walked to the coffee shop and then spent like an hour walking around the block and, you know, whatever. And then we came back and we we're like, okay, we we feel a lot better. And then we sat down and got back to our work. But if we were, if we weren't in control of our time, we couldn't go like, you know, I'm feeling really off right now. Let's pause what we're doing and like try to do something to like actually get back on track instead of just like slogging through what somebody else is telling me that I have to do. Yep. So yeah, that's like a very small example of that kind of freedom. But while we were walking, we both looked at each other and we're like, man, we love our life that we can, that we can do that and that we're in control of those types of decisions and, and we can decide when we need to step away and when we need to come back and all of those things. Yeah. I think, um, Obviously, we've built, you know, from RV life to the way we've done our careers and to what we're trying to do, freedom has been one of the biggest drivers for us. Um, and some people, maybe it's not as as big of a driver as it is for us, but I, I think, think it's, it's a pretty a big, big driver, driver for everybody, people. but they you just define it differently. Totally. So freedom comes in all different forms, and we've talked about that on different episodes. But I think to maybe close out this point, I'll read this this short section here. He's talking about this guy named Agnes Campbell. Uh, who was a psychologist at the University of Michigan, and he spent uh, most of his life really studying things that brought people down and also um, things that, you know, brought people up or happiness. He has a book that came out in 1981 called The Sense of Well-Being in America. And he starts out by pointing out that people are actually generally happier than most psychologists assume, which I thought was interesting. Here's the part where I want to read. The most powerful common denominator of happiness was simple. Campbell summed it up. Having a strong sense of controlling one's life is a more dependable predictor of positive feelings of well-being than any of the objective conditions of life that we've considered. More than your salary, more than the size of your house, more than the prestige of your job, control over doing what you want, when you want to, with the people you want to, is the broadest lifestyle variable that makes people happy. Money's greatest intrinsic value and this can't be overstated, says Morgan Household this time, is its ability to give you control over your time. So again, going back to like the never enough and compounding and investing and all these things, you don't need bajillions of dollars to be happy. You need enough money to have some level of control. I totally agree. But it's amazing how easy it is as humans to get distracted with possessions totally. and like impressing other people yep. with possessions. And so he covers that in the next section, which is the man in the car paradox. I'm going to let you talk about that. Cause Gosh, I thought this was so cool. I keep saying like, oh, this is my favorite part. Legit though, this might be one of my favorite parts. <laughs> uh, so here's here's what he says. First off, he tells you that he was a valet. You know, some people would come in crazy cars, people driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis and like crazy nice cars. And he says, it was my dream to have one of these cars of my own because I thought that they sent such a strong signal to others that you've made it. You're smart. You're rich. You have taste. You're important. Look at me. He said, the irony is that I rarely, if ever, looked at the drivers. When you see someone driving a nice car, you rarely think, wow, the guy driving that car is so cool. Instead, you think, wow, if I had that car, people would think I'm cool. Subconscious or not, this is how people think. There's a paradox here. People tend to want wealth to signal to others that they should be liked and admired. But in reality, those same people often bypass admiring you, not because they don't think wealth is admirable, but because they use your wealth as a benchmark for their own desire to be liked and admired. Housel then goes on to talk about a, a letter that he wrote to his son, uh, he says, the letter I wrote after my son was born said, you might think you want an expensive car, a fancy watch, a huge house, but I'm telling you, you don't. What you want is respect and admiration from other people. And you think having these expensive things will bring it. It almost never does, especially from the people that you want to respect and admire you the most. I thought that was so funny and it was so True. Specifically, I grew up in a big car family. Cars were a big deal, right? My dad worked on cars. Certainly the town I lived in, everybody was all about old muscle cars and different things like that. And 
it is funny because when I think about it now, even looking back, I'm like, yeah, I never cared who was driving the car. I just was like, oh, that car's awesome. What if I could have that car? Mm -hmm. I never cared who was driving it. And yet I somehow thought other people would then care about me if I was. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. I don't relate to that with cars. Uh, but I do relate to it with house stuff. Yeah. So like when I'm looking at Instagram and I see somebody's living room, you know, designed some way that I absolutely love. I definitely like looking back, I'm like, yeah, I've definitely had the thought people would think X, Y, or Z thing about me if I had a living room that looked like that. <laughs> like you definitely turn it back on yourself instead of thinking about the person. It's so funny. So it kind of goes hand in hand with the next two chapters, which are that wealth is what you don't see, and then the importance of saving money. And the wealth is what you don't see is kind of funny because one line he says is, spending money to show people how much money you have is the fastest way to end up with less money. We've got to read the Rihanna thing because I still love oh, about yes. that. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hang on a second. I'll find it. So Hazel says, singer Rihanna nearly went bankrupt after overspending and sued her financial advisor. The advisor responded, was it really necessary to tell her that if you spend money on things, you'll end up with the things and not the money? <laughs> it's so true, though. Well, and he says, he's like, you can laugh and please do. But the answer is, yes, people do need to be told that. When most people say they want to be a millionaire, what they might actually mean is, I'd like to spend a million dollars. And that is literally the opposite of being a millionaire. That's incredible. I know. It's so funny. It's so good. But it's so true because, Mm -hmm. I mean, how often do you do it? We drive by a a big house right in the neighborhood or we see a nice car in town or, you know, something like that. I'm like, oh, man, they must have money. It's like, actually, I mean, maybe they do, but also maybe they just spend a lot of money. Yeah. And we're going to jump around a little bit here to a part kind of later in the book. Yeah, it's chapter 16. And he says, beware taking financial cues from people playing a different game than you are. I think that can mean... A whole lot of different things like when you when you look at somebody who has a fancy car so first of all it can be like you said maybe that means they have money maybe it means they're in a lot of debt so maybe you're playing a different game in that way but two say they actually do have a lot of money they might really value fancy cars whereas you don't and you choose to drive a super old kind of junker car because you just don't care about cars that much. But it doesn't mean you don't have money. It just means that's not how you want to spend your money. Totally. I don't want it to seem like we're hating on like extravagant purchases because there's nothing wrong with buying a fancy car if you have the money and that's what you really value. That's totally Totally. great. But just being aware that you are most definitely playing a different game than different people because like we talked about at the beginning, you have had very specific experiences and circumstances that have shaped your view and what you prioritize. And so to try to do what everybody around you is doing is not going to be a successful, it's not going to be a, a recipe for success. That's right. Well, and and so this comes into play with the spending side, but it also comes into play, he spends a great deal of time in this chapter talking about your investments. One of the great things about social media and the rise of YouTube and TikTok and podcasts and all these things is that all kinds of people, more people have more access to learning about investing and building wealth, which is great. The problem, as we've talked about in a podcast, I think called like something like all money experts are wrong or something like that. Um, The problem is that listening to me and you listening to somebody on YouTube, listening to somebody on TikTok, listening to somebody on Twitter, talk about some investment they're making. You and I, you've talked, you and I've talked about, you know, buying a rental property. The problem is you might be playing a very different game. You have a different risk tolerance than other people. You have a different timeline and horizon. You have a different family situation. You have different desires for spending, which means you need to invest differently. You need to be thoughtful about what you're doing and take on risk according to your own sort of game plan. And he gives a ton of examples on investments and how all these different fund managers chase different returns, but they're playing different games. And so it causes all these issues around their investments and ultimately how they end up losing money. The main takeaway being you need to play your game and be very careful about taking cues from others playing a different game. Doesn't mean you can't learn from them just means you need to filter that through. Okay, what game are they playing and how can maybe I apply that to my situation without trying to copy them because they're doing something different? And also making sure that you don't automatically feel like you're doing something wrong 
just because it's different than what you see other people doing. Totally. Which I, I like really struggle with that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think kind of the culmination of, of these chapters, right? So the, the man in the car paradox, the wealth is what you don't see. And even some of the you and me stuff kind of culminates. And chapter 10, he has just this focus on saving money. Chapters just called save money. And basically the point of the chapter is to recognize that, listen, there's a lot of factors that play into you getting wealthy, but there's really only one that you can control that generates the main thing that matters, which is how much you save. He spends a lot of time kind of focusing on that, and he, he has this great line. He says, the only factor you can control generates one of the only things that matters. How wonderful. And he really puts the control back in your hands and just encourages you to say, listen, wealth is what you don't see. Wealth is not keeping up with all these other people. So let's save money to get more of that freedom, more of that control, and more of that flexibility that you really want down the road. So speaking of planning for the future and saving for things that you might want down the road, that leads us into the sticky topic of that's going to change. <laughs> um, so he has a whole section on you'll change. And he says, long-term planning is harder than it seems because people's goals and desires change over time. So I'm just going to read a section out of this chapter. Housel says, long-term financial planning is essential, but things change, both the world around you and your own goals and desires. It is one thing to say, we don't know what the future holds. It's another to admit that you yourself don't know today what you will even want in the future. It's hard to make enduring long-term decisions when your view of what you'll want in the future is likely to shift. The end-of-history illusion is what psychologists call the tendency for people to be keenly aware of how much they've changed in the past, but to underestimate how much their personalities, desires, and goals are likely to change in the future. And then um, he quotes Daniel Gilbert, who's a psychologist, and the, the main part of his quote that I liked was that he says, All of us are walking around with an illusion, an illusion that history, our personal history, has just come to an end that we have just recently become the people that we were always meant to be and will be for the rest of our lives. I think that <laughs> I, finally, I can find myself thinking, made it. yeah, I've made it. Okay, like, uh, here, I know what I want now. And it's like, nope, it's still going to change. So then back to Housel. He says, you can see how this can impact a long-term financial plan. Charlie Munger says the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. But how do you not interrupt a money plan, careers, investments, spending, budgeting, whatever, when what you want out of life changes? It's hard. Part of the reason people like Ronald Reed, the wealthy janitor we met earlier in the book, and Warren Buffett become so successful is because they kept doing the same thing for decades on end, letting compounding run wild. But many of us evolve so much over a lifetime that we don't want to keep doing the same thing for decades on end or anything close to it. So rather than one 80-something year lifespan, our money has perhaps four distinct 20-year blocks. I know young people who purposefully live austere lives with little income, and they're perfectly happy with it. Then there are those who work their tails off to pay for a life of luxury, and they're perfectly happy with that. Both have risks— the former risk being unprepared to raise a family or fund retirement. The latter risk regret that you spent your youthful and healthy years in a cubicle. There's no easy solution to this problem. So Housel says that there's two things to keep in mind when making what you think are long-term decisions. The first is that we should avoid the extreme ends of financial planning. He says, assuming you'll be happy with a very low income or choosing to work endless hours in pursuit of a high one increases the odds that you'll one day find yourself at a point of regret. The fuel of the end of history illusion is that people adapt to most circumstances. So the benefits of an extreme plan, like the simplicity of having hardly anything or the thrill of having almost everything, wear off. But the downsides of those extremes, not being able to afford retirement or looking back at a life spent devoted to chasing dollars, become enduring regrets. So the second thing that he says to keep in mind is that we should also come to accept the reality of changing our minds. Some of the most miserable workers I've met are people who stay loyal to a career only because it's the field they picked when deciding on a college major at age 18. And I love this next part. 
When you accept the end of history illusion, you realize that the odds of picking a job when you're not old enough to drink that you will still enjoy when you're old enough to qualify for Social Security are low. The trick is to accept the reality of change and move on as soon as possible. I really feel like I can't do this book justice because I basically should just read it because he says so eloquently, like all these things that I've thought but couldn't basically say, like you and I have thought a lot about the fact that we change. We've changed majors, we've changed jobs, we've changed careers, all these things, like change our location. But he just says it so eloquently and so perfectly. And when you read it, you almost go, yeah, duh, of course I'm going to change. Why haven't I thought about it in this way before? But uh, not only do most people not think about it, you also then have to take the next step and actually do some financial planning and preparation for the fact that you will change and you don't even know what you're going to change to. Which makes me think of something that you do really well and that you've encouraged us to do, and that is to make decisions that help optimize our flexibility. I think we've touched on this in the past too, and I won't linger here long, but there have been several decisions that we've made and we've kind of felt like torn on what to do. And you've always used that as something to kind of, okay, well, let's think about it this way. Like which one of these options gives us more future flexibility. Um, And I think that that, I think that's a really useful way to a really useful lens to look at things when you're trying to make a decision. Yeah. I mean, like all things, it's all things in moderation, right? If you, if you used that filter for everything, then I would have never married you. Right. Because I would have said, well, I don't want to lock myself down. I want future flexibility. Yeah. But also we're talking about decisions that you were torn on. I mean, you were totally sold on marrying me. (laughs) But my, my point is if you, if, if your number one thing in life is always optimizing for flexibility, then you'll never make commitments to anything. Right. But the point is. It's a lens that has to be used in combination. Yes. But most people, I think, don't include the flexibility lens often enough. And that's what gets them into situations that become very difficult to navigate out of, um, or at least very painful to navigate out of, which is what I try to avoid. I think to maybe tie a bow on this this whole section, um, he goes into a bit about making you know decisions with sunk costs, right? Just keeping on doing it uh, because, well, that's just what you've been doing. Uh, and he has this great line. So he says, sunk costs... Anchoring decisions to past efforts that cannot be refunded are a devil in a world where people change over time. They make our future selves prisoners to our past, different selves. It's the equivalent of a stranger making major life decisions for you today. I thought that was so good. We don't it's a really think, nice summary. Yes, we don't think cost. about ourselves in the past being a stranger to our current self. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, we are. And if we let our past self make decisions for our current self, that's like a stranger making decisions. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, moving on to one of the last sections that we're going to talk about. That's the seduction of pessimism. And I really think you're the better one to talk about this. Sure, yeah. I mean, he has this line in here that I like that that kind of calls out the problem with this, right? So optimism sounds like a sales pitch, but pessimism sounds like somebody is trying to help you. The problem is that when you focus too much on pessimism, you end up doing things like not investing at all, not building wealth at all, not taking any kind of risk at all, which ends up hurting you long-term even worse and almost becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts. It's funny, right? This whole book, he's telling stories, and then he's, he tells you stories in chapter 17 about how we need to be careful about stories uh, because pessimism and pessimistic stories about how the world is going to you know hell in a handbasket is really seductive. And it feels like when someone tells us that, that they're trying to help us. Whereas when we're we're so conditioned from advertisements or whatever, that when someone is optimistic about the future and trying to feed us optimism, it feels like a sales pitch, which sucks, but it is the unfortunate reality. So like with the rest of the book, a lot of it is just recognizing reality and then trying to react to it with your eyes wide open. The way that I like to think about pessimism and optimism is that both are helpful and you know, Hannah, you might be the first one to tell me that sometimes I can be blindly optimistic uh, <laughs> in certain areas, and you have to give us a healthy dose of reality. But I like to think that a helpful framework is to be micro-pessimistic and macro-optimistic. 
Gary Vaynerchuk has this great framework I like called uh, micro speed macro patience. The idea is that in the macro, in the big, big stuff in life, you should be patient and wait. But in the in the right now, in the here and now, you got to work. You got to hustle. You got to work hard. You got to get after it. You got to be speedy. So micro speed, work and get after it as if you're impatient, but in the macro, still be patient. Well, I like that idea, but applied to pessimism and optimism. So in the micro, financially, it's really wise for you to be pessimistic. Like plan on your car breaking down, plan on your roof leaking, plan on a teenager breaking an arm, plan on somebody getting sick. You have to be a little bit pessimistic, which means you need to save. You need to save a little more than you think you should save so that when something goes wrong, you're ready. However, in the macro, I think it's helpful to be optimistic and thinking that if you invest for the long term, you think long term, that things are going to work out in your favor. Normally, and you know, this is not a show about investment, so we're not going to get deep on this. But if you look at historical data, if you invest broadly in something like broadly diversified index funds over the long, long term, yes, you build wealth. And so I like to think about it as being micro pessimistic but macro optimistic. By being a little bit pessimistic in the micro and optimistic in the macro, in the micro, you build the skill set of like being a little frugal, being able to cut back, being able to navigate, being able to save a little bit here and there, being able to budget. You build those skills because you are kind of micro pessimistic. And guess what that does? In the macro, when you get to retirement, as you get older, those skills end up serving you well because not only have you actually compounded your money, you've compounded your ability to navigate with your money. Yeah. And so no matter what kind of retirement you end up entering, maybe the stock market crashes on the day you retire, you have the skill set now to navigate that, which means you should be optimistic that things are going to work out. That is such a great point because I think a lot of people that get into retirement that that you've talked to and worked with, they've been able to go their working life without really thinking about their money. Yep. And so then they're trying to make this big transition into retirement, kind of feeling like they don't have as much money as they hope that they had. And they're trying to develop all these new skills of budgeting and sticking to a budget and thinking about how they want to use their money and thinking about how they can use their money and you know all of these things. And it's really hard to do all that at once. Yes. So yeah, I think that's a great point. All right, we're getting close, y'all. So the last the last chapter that Morgan Housel puts in there is really, I thought, fascinating and really cool of him to do, but it's called Confessions, and it basically just tells you the psychology of how he does his own money, and he kind of opens up. He doesn't tell you exactly how much money he has necessarily or anything like that, but- But you know he's got a lot. You know he's, he's doing all right, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he opens up about how he invests his money, where he keeps it, what savings accounts kind of he does. Um, And I just thought that was really neat because it's sort of, uh, you know, somebody who's espousing all this advice, but he's not afraid to sort of show you, okay, and if you're curious, you know, uh, the whole phrase of put your money where your mouth is, you know, okay, let me show you where my money is, and then you can decide. What's cool about what he does is that for him, he actually keeps more money in savings accounts that are not invested than would be mathematically the right thing to do, right? So if you look up like, the traditional sort of order of operations for what to do with money, paying down debt, investing, emergency fund, all that stuff. Housel kind of breaks that and keeps much more in savings than would be mathematically what you would expect. And he opens up about that and says, listen, this is my own psychology. I'm very risk averse. I recognize that technically this is a lousy financial return on my money, but it gives me immeasurable emotional return because it makes it to where during a down market, I don't have to pull money out. Uh, I just sleep better at night. He really leans into the psychology side and being comfortable with making decisions around his money based on his own psychology, which I thought was really, really, really cool. Uh, and just further backs up the whole point of the book, which is knowing yourself, your own psychology, and then acting accordingly. We always try to bring an action component to our episodes. And so we wanted we wanted to kind of wrap up with asking, did anything that Housel talked about in this book change how we thought about our own money? And we hope that if you've read the book or just listened to this episode that you'll ask yourself that same question. But for me in particular, I think the kind of the biggest thing that I took away is I am so bad about measuring 
the correctness of what I'm doing based on what other people around me are doing. Yeah. And so I really liked how he talked about that. And it made me feel more confident about making decisions that don't necessarily align with everybody around us. That's something that I've talked about struggling with on here before. That's part of why I liked Mary Laura Philpott's book so much. Which is cool, right? Like you just talked about how I read this personal finance book. What was your big takeaway? Uh, Not really anything to do with money specifically. I mean, yes, it involves money, but your main takeaway was like, much more about like your mindset and your confidence for your own decision making. And and I guess it's not necessarily a change in how I think it's like me trying to change how I think about it. Yeah. And it's like I said, like Mary Laura Philpott's book talks about it, but it was also nice to have like an analytical finance person talk about the same thing in a different way totally. and go like, oh, okay. Like he says it's okay too. Yeah. So I guess I'm essentially still just I'm letting other people tell me that my decisions are okay still, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> don't get too meta. I don't know. Meta. Don't analyze this too much. Don't get too meta. Uh, so for me, I don't know. Ch- change is not the right word because I don't know that I did like a complete 180 on any of my thoughts around money. What I did do is it gave me a lot more touch points and I guess evidence, if you will, on just how important being prepared for flexibility is for me he all of the historical world event stuff right like wars great depressions stock market inflation like all these things that happen that are quote-unquote black swan events right they're unpredictable a worldwide pandemic right that that uh, crushes and we shut down all these things the whole purpose of a of calling it a black swan event is that you can't predict it And he shows over and over and over again how this happens in history. And we can't predict it. We don't know when it's going to happen. But hey, we can actually know that it's probably going to happen. And it really drove home for me just how unprecedented uh, events are happening all the time. And, you know, it really made me feel even more like we need to prepare right? Financially, uh, I guess it made me lean into my, my prepper tendencies without, without going full tilt. Um, that, that's probably the big thing I think it did for me. Other than that, it just, you know, again, drove home. It's always nice to me every couple of years to read something and remind myself just how important compounding is, because that gets me excited to get a little bit more aggressive to make sure that compounding is working in our favor. Okay, so the second question that we have is what's one thing from the book that you're going to implement in your life? For me, what I walked away from this book going, okay, me and me and Nick need to sit down and do this together, is related to the whole enough chapter and making sure that the taste of having more isn't increasing our ambition faster than our satisfaction, to yeah. use his little quote there. Um, and so what, what do I mean by that exactly? Like... We're in a growth period. So like, you know, we just bought a house this year. Mm -hmm. We were moving out of a camper and into a house, which means that we really had a clean slate. And so we are in a period of like acquiring things and making improvements to our house and and doing all this stuff. But I want to make sure that we are mindful of our goalposts and that we're not pushing our goalposts ahead two or three steps with every every step forward that we make with our money. Yeah. And and making sure that we can recognize when it's enough and not having an unhealthy relationship with that. And I think that's really um it's a it's a hard thing to do as a business owner or anybody who works in a job where like even in my old engineering job, there was as much overtime as I wanted. Yeah. I could work as many hours. There was always enough work. I could just work ninety hundred hour weeks if I wanted to. And being a business owner, it's something we had to be conscious of because I can just keep putting in more hours. And at some point, why? Right. Yeah. At some point, why are we doing this? Well, it's like the people who work a ton of overtime so that they can buy a boat, but then they have to like keep working the overtime so that they can make payments on their boat and their truck and their whatever. So they have this boat, but they don't even have time to use it. And yep. Yeah. So it is just like, okay, why am I striving for these things again? Yes. I think that's a good one. For me, again, going back to the compounding comment, I think the big thing that I want to implement is I have a bad habit for some reason in my mind where like I can't invest money in little chunks at a time. Like I need to like do my regular monthly amount, which is like a fixed thing, right? I can't 
Uh, for some reason, I, I shouldn't just be like, oh, look, we spent less money on clothing this month. I'm going to send 20 bucks to our Roth IRA. Like, I should just do that. Um, and I think over time, because that's what we did when we were in debt pay down mode. Mm-hmm. Like, I did that on the Airstream when we were paying that down. Yeah. Uh, and it it accelerated debt pay down so much faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to have that same mindset towards our investments so that we can just siphon $10 here, $20 there. Uh, and over time, I believe that will will have a much, 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 much bigger, greater impact. Um, so that's kind of the thing I, I want to take away. Certainly, I think if we can, you know, put those little extra dollars here and there into that account, uh, we'll like it a lot more if our account balances go up. And uh, you know what else we like? What do we like? Stuff we like. All right, Hannah, what uh, what are you liking this week? I am liking something called the Hydro Jug. And I'm going to describe this as a cat-sized water bottle. Because <laughs> <laughs> earlier today, both of our cats were sitting up on the table and my water bottle just so happened to be like right beside where they were sitting. And I was like, hmm. It's the same size. Like the same size. Um, so basically, it's just this huge water bottle that for me, if I drink one of them, I'm basically at my recommended uh, water, water amount, amount yeah. for the day. So I really liked it because I can just fill it up in the morning and then I just set it on my desk and then I just try to get through it throughout the workday. Isn't it so funny? I'm not calling you lazy, but I'm calling humans lazy. But like, isn't it so funny how like... Oh, just small barriers will keep you from yes, things. Like you had a water bottle that you needed to fill up like three or four times yeah. to get your water through the day. And I would drink it once and then I would just never refill it. Yeah. It's like, and it's like 10 not that steps hard to, to fit, go refill, to refill it. But, but you I'm don't just, do it. Yeah, because I'll be in the middle of something. I'll be like, oh, okay, well, when I finish this thing, I'll go refill my water bottle. And then I just end up not doing it. Yep. So to have like just, I just set it in front of me. It's like a visual cue. I know how much I need to drink. And plus, um, on the days when I would actually refill my smaller one, I would always be like, is this the second time I've done this or the third time? For me, it leads to me drinking more water and less coffee, uh, which I need to do. Yeah. So there you go. Is there a quick wrap up for this episode? Yeah, I think. <laughs> think about what we I said think, and decide whether or not you want to read more. Whether or not you want to read psychology it. Psychology. No, I mean seriously, I, I I would highly recommend this book. I think to summarize it, I'm just going to reread the Napoleon quote because I think it's really really good at summarizing the book. A genius is the man who can do the average thing when everyone else around him is losing his mind. This book does a great job of outlining the human psychology behind money all the stuff that affects your money decisions, helping you recognize it, helping you overcome it, and then sometimes just helping you recognize we need to play into it. To me, it's one of the most practical financial books out there because it talks about the actual behavior side, which is the real stuff that uh, if you want to do well with money, you're going to have to deal with. So we love this book. We'd highly recommend it. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. And uh, as always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.